Yep, we are in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Here's a section of exhortations that are clearly linked together where it says in verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider. Verse 25, not forsaking our fellowship. So, four straight verses that are urging us to take action. So, there there are uh, some important warnings that are coming up. And before the warning, which is in verse 26, we have encouragement to take action based on what we've already learned in the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews, which is that Christ has paid the price for sins, that He ascended into heaven, that He sits at the right hand of God, that He's cleansed our conscience, that He gave us access to the throne of grace, and that this is a greater high priest, a greater house, a greater covenant, and therefore we should be doing what it says in these verses. That's, that's the big background. Okay, Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this is not the first time we're told to draw near. We, it says the same thing in Hebrews 7.25. It says the same thing in Hebrews 11.6. It says the same thing in Hebrews 12, verses 18 and 22. So we are called to draw near because it's possible to draw near now that Jesus Christ has made the provision for purging our sins and bringing us to the Father. So, the way excuse me, that we are to draw near, it says, with a sincere heart. What's a sincere heart? Okay, a sincere love for God. That single purpose, not double-minded, that sincerity, I think the word sincere comes from a, a unified or a, a, a one essence. Yeah, the word... Uh, although I didn't look this particular one up, but generally in the New Testament, the word translated sincere means one, being one. And what it means is to not have, uh, or to have unsullied motives. Yeah, or duplicitous. Have you ever heard uh, of duplicity? It it has something to do with politicians. It means you appear one way to everybody, but there's something else going on that they don't see. Yeah, you got a hidden agenda. Yes. Well, in Hebrews, I don't know if they're um, the miracles and signs that have been mentioned so far in Hebrews had to do with the giving of the new covenant through the apostles that the signs that God did validated the teaching of the apostles. Wasn't that in Hebrews 2? Yeah, I think well, just this verse itself, it says, draw near the sin's heart, the sincere heart, because we're sprinkled clean with you. You bring to yeah. It doesn't say because we're, you know, because Jesus sprinkled us clean with the yeah. blood that was proven the, true because of his resurrection. Right, the ground of it is the resurrection of Christ the institution of the new covenant in his blood. And these are the things that are important. Signs and wonders are only significant in in as much as they actually signify something. So the signs and wonders that are valid in the Bible all signify that Jesus is the Messiah and that God raised him from the dead. Signs and wonders (coughs) excuse me, never signify that the guy preaching is some great, wonderful prophet that you're supposed to listen to. They signify that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the way you use discernment when it comes to sign and wonders isn't to see whether something worked or it didn't work. I I had um, an interesting phone call this week. People seem to be finding this Theophostic Ministry article that I wrote. I think part of it is because Ed Smith posted it on his own site. So people that 
are believing Theophostics find my article and then it evidently has an impact because they call me and they say, well, why are you saying this is wrong? And the only argument I've ever heard from somebody on the other side is that it works. I've never heard an argument that it was biblical or anything else. They just argued that it works. And their proof that it's valid is that it works. But that's not how you design or discern the supernatural. Because Satan does lying signs and wonders. Antichrist is going to come with lying signs and wonders. Now, lying signs and wonders doesn't mean they didn't really happen. It means that they have a false message attached to them. Now, I had supper with Brian Flynn Friday night, and then the two of us went out to the Jan's conference, and we were discussing this. And that's the argument that he's been getting to as he confronts the mysticism in the church, is that people say, well, this really does work. And his argument was, well, what I was doing when I was in the New Age worked too. I really did hear the spirits really did give me valid information. I really did psychic readings that were valid. and But yet it wasn't from God. So isn't that kind of a danger if you're going to go out and believe in signs and wonders? They may not be from God. It may be God testing us. I think that if you look at Acts 14, signs and wonders are in the same sign or wonder that God brings can lead you further into deception or can lead you to God. Because you have one... Paul goes to Derby to heal this man. He says, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and began to walk. And the crowd saw what Paul had done. They raised their voice and sang the Laconian language. The gods have become like men and came down to us. They began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. <laughs> so we have the pagans looking at this sign, praising their gods. And in that case, if they were looking, praising their gods and their, their, their idols for that, it's a false sign to them if they don't accept the gospel and what is being presented. The same sign goes both ways. Right, and then Paul, those guys, says, no, no, they robes. told their robes and say, don't do this. We're men of like nature as you are. But yeah, the, the, so the real, the, the way you discern signs and wonders is by what message is being proclaimed. This is smell, yeah. The guy, the guy in life, he really was healed. You could bring a doctor. Yep, he's healed. But depending on what message you believe was, were blessed by with the gospel and some people were led further into damnation. Yes. There's several verses in scripture that says an evil and adulterous generation seeks after signs and wonders. Yes. And I don't care if signs and wonders works or not. If, if you're seeking signs and wonders, you're seeking proof. And if you're looking for proof, you're not living by faith. Um, remember when Jesus said, you come to me not because you saw signs, but because you were fed? Their motives were wrong. The sign was point, to point them to faith in Christ. And when they didn't want to come to faith in Christ, they just wanted to be fed, then he refused. And then they, then they said to him, well, Moses gave us manna from heaven. What kind of bread are you going to give? So he said, all right, I'm going to give my, my flesh for bread and my blood for drink. Then they really got mad. And pretty soon the revival turned into a rebellion. And there was only a handful left that was willing to follow Jesus because they would accept his teaching for what it said. So that is uh, how you do that. Okay, a sincere heart is one that is single in the sense that there is not something else going on besides the desire to come to God on his terms. And this sincere heart is in full assurance of faith. Assurance is an important thing that we need. And... Um, some, most religions teach salvation by works. And if you have salvation by works, how do you find assurance? You work harder and harder and harder and you still don't ever really get it. Like the Jehovah Witnesses, you have to spend the rest of your life passing out watchtower tracks and going to Kingdom Hall two or three times a week and giving your money to the cult. And when you get done, you don't get to go to heaven. What a deal. <laughs> and when you explain that back to them, then they say, well, sir, you don't understand. No, I do understand. <laughs> yes. A true heart rather than a sincere heart. Okay. That would be a synonym. So the assurance here comes from faith, and our faith has an objective content. 
It isn't just belief for the sake of believing in something, but faith in the New Testament is faith in God through the person of Christ whom He raised from the dead. Alright? So, a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. Now, this is probably an illusion. Well, it was talked about earlier in Hebrews 9 that the contrast was in the Old Testament they had the blood of sprinkling that made Aaron and his son ceremonially clean. But in the New Testament, the sprinkling is internal. So, rather than sprinkling externally that says, okay, you've gone through the ritual, now you can do your priestly service for today without dying. The New Testament says God actually cleanses our heart. He, he works on the inside. He cleanses our conscience from, a, from, a, from wickedness and sin and, and uh, makes us right from the inside out. So, having our hearts sprinkled would be the internal work of grace. And then bodies washed, frankly, is probably an allusion to baptism. Okay? And the idea would be that those who come to faith have first thing that happens is God cleanses your heart. He works on the inside. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. So here he says both of these things were true for the for the Hebrews, that they had come to God on His terms and had their hearts cleansed. And then they had obediently followed the Lord in baptism and had their bodies washed. Now, I was going to show you, Dean, could you look up? This This gives you the allusion to the Old Testament. Exodus 9, excuse me, Exodus 29, two verses in there, verse 4 and verse 21. Okay, Exodus 29, verse 4 and 21 will show the Old Testament version of this. Alright? Exodus, Exodus 29. 29. 29. First read verse 4. 29, 4. Okay, so there's the washing of water. Now look at verse 21. 29, 21. And thou shalt take the blood that is upon the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon the garment of his sons with him and he shall be hallowed in his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Okay, but that means to be made holy, yes. Why is it in the inverse order? I, I don't know that it, the order is so... Being how that the, the entire thing was ceremonial, it doesn't necessarily have to have the same order as far as the Old Testament. And there are other passages. I didn't look them all up. I don't know if the order is ever reversed. But um, Then, um, Brian, could you look up Hebrews 9, 18-22 to show how this applies to us? But the idea was, in the Old Testament, the priests, the priests were washed and sprinkled. In the New Testament, we have a different thing. Okay? But it's a greater thing, but it finds its typological significance in the old. Hebrews 9, 18 to 22. So even the first covenant was not inaugurated and ratified and put in force without the shedding of blood. For when every command of the law had been read out by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of slain calves and goats together with water and scarlet wool and with a bunch of hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying these words, this is the blood that seals and ratifies the agreement which God commanded to you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels and appliances used in divine worship. Under the law, almost everything is purified by means of blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is neither release from sin and its guilt, nor the remission of the due and merited punishment for sins. Wow. So, so it's about removing sins. So, um, I was going to read a William Lane's excellent commentary on Hebrews. He says this. Now, these, by the way, are perfect participles. Perfect means something, the perfect tense means something happened in the past that's still true. Alright, so there was a point in time when it originally happened at our conversion, but their benefits continue on. So that means it's a once-for-all thing. It's not that you have to go over and over again. In other words, you don't have to get saved continually. You don't. 
Yeah, there were people I knew when I was a new Christian who really, really believed that every time you sin, that you'd lose your salvation. And they would be up, they had altar calls in the church, and they'd be up every Sunday night getting saved again. Week after week after week after week. Because they weren't being, because they had bad doctrine in that church and they weren't telling people about the completed, finished work. And because they didn't understand this, they kept losing their sense of assurance. And, they, and their assurance was based on going forward at the altar rather than the finished work of Christ that they received by faith. But here's what it says here. These clauses have reference to the application of the benefits of Christ's sacrifice to the Christian at some decisive moment in the past. The perfect tenses of the participles have been sprinkled, have been washed, refer to actions which are accomplished in enduring facts. They stress conditions of approach to God which Christians already enjoy. So having been sprinkled and washed, now you can at any time come to God. You don't have to go back over it again. It's done. So you can come to God. Yes. There's an interesting thing that I don't recall exactly where it is. I think it's kind of in Leviticus where it talks about priests washing their hands before they do their priestly duties. Yeah, the labor of washing. And it's really interesting that surgeons use that same procedure today to get germ-free. And I'm just, I'm just thinking that God had that foreordained before the priests or the people knew about germs at all. It was done where they would wash away everything that was... Uh, yeah, and they were doing it for ceremonial reasons. So... As far as the sin nature, God washes it away when we come to Him by faith through grace. Without that knowledge of assurance, when I was first saved 14 years ago, this will sound silly, but I remember numerous times where something would happen in my life and then I would ask to be saved all over again. I, I, was, I remember 20 times. Really, that. really. I, I just constantly. Did, I, I believe that that may be true for a lot of new Christians that they don't have that knowledge of assurance. And uh, you know, if you, Ryan's the, yeah, that's a good book, Eternal Scars by Ryan wrote. And the antidote to two air. There's two possible errors. You know, from one extreme to the other. And the antidote to both of them is the whole counsel of God. One error would be uh, what I call easy believism, where you tell people they give mental assent to Jesus, they're saved even if they live like the devil the rest of their life. That gives false assurance to people that never were saved. And that doctrine's prevalent. And then there's the other extreme of, uh, of legalism that would tell people that if they don't live according to some perfect standard that the church set up, then they just lost their salvation or they, they never really were saved or whatever. And the Bible has a fully balanced thing. God inspired the Bible. It has everything that we need. It corrects whatever error might come. And by, for instance, Hebrews gives us assurance of a sincere heart washed by the blood of Jesus, their conscience clean, and we have access to God, but in the midst of this assurance, it warns us against apostasy. Because look at verse 26, where we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins. So, we're granted assurance, but we're warned against abusing it. Yeah, within the whole context. And the, the danger of anything less than teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God is that the people who are sitting under that teaching will not fully grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And, and not doing so is, is going to be spiritually damaging. The things that we leave out will come back and bite us. Because they're in the Bible for a reason. So that's why we don't leave anything out. Well, I have a bunch of cross-references to this one. So Denise, we'll start with you. Leviticus 14.7 Lori, Numbers 19, 18, and 19, and Phyllis, Psalm 51, 10, Keith, Psalm, what is that? 
I'm going to skip that because I can't read it. <clears throat> Try Isaiah 29:13, and Leif, Isaiah 52:15, Tyler, Ezekiel 36:25. What is this? Oh, here it is. I can read it. Dennis, Zechariah 13, 1. And Barb, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And we'll, we'll stop there. I still have more, but we'll stop with those. And then we'll pick up. Okay, Leviticus 7, 14, 7. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. So that was ceremonially declaring the leper to have been cleansed. And in a lot of ways, we were all lepers. We had the leprosy of sin. And we weren't fit to be in the congregation, or we weren't fit to come into God's presence, and we weren't fit for anything spiritual. But God cleansed us and sprinkled us clean, and now we have full access through faith. That's really important. Numbers 19, 18, and 19. A clean Christian shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent and on all the vessels, on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched a bone, his lame, a dead, or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall, be, he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in the water, and at the evening he shall be clean. Okay, there, there again was the Old Testament concept of needing cleansing, and so you had the sprinkling. That was Numbers um, 19, 18, and 19. And I discussed the necessity of the sprinkling in order to be clean. And then uh, this one was David's Psalm 51, 10, when after David's sin. Create in me a clean heart of God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart. So that the reason I included that one, so we might get the idea that the only concept they had in the Old Covenant was the external sprinkling, like those first verses. But Psalm 51 shows that they also knew about the need for an internal cleansing. Because, because David was crying out to God for a clean heart, not just sacrifices that would make him ceremonially clean. He knew that he was a wicked sinner and that he was guilty. And so he asked God for a clean heart. Psalm, no, excuse me, Isaiah 29:13. Okay, so they they were just going through the rote traditions learned by rote. Their hearts are far from me, and you know that was a condition that was lamented by Isaiah concerning Israel in the old covenant. But isn't it just as true for many in Christendom? Aren't there millions of people who go to mass or church or whatever it is they do week by week by week, following the traditions and the rote? but whose hearts have never been totally changed by the grace of God and by the blood? Yeah, if Dan was here, you know, what I just... Yeah, if Dan, Dan was here, we'd get a lecture on that one. Uh, good point. If you, <laughs> Thunder Dan would let us have it, but as a matter of fact, it's certainly a prevalent condition of just going through the motions. And traditions learned by rote, rather than a heart that's truly converted. Yes. I think it's when Jesus refers back to Matthew when Jesus talks about the scriptures say this, but you say, and he goes back and forth because the traditions actually took precedence over what God had said. As a matter of fact, that's absolutely true. And I've used this analogy many times, and the more I study church history, the more I'm convinced the analogy is very appropriate. Religious traditions are like a great, big, huge steamroller. Have you ever seen those, after they put down the blacktop, those big rollers that the guys, you know, sitting up there flattening it out? Well, those things move rather slowly, but they're very, very heavy. And once that thing is rolling, it's going to flatten out anything in its path. And that's, an, that's I think, a great illustration of church traditions, is that, People, I have seen scholars and brilliant people who understand so well the gospel and the truth of the Word of God, but when it comes to things that are traditional in their denomination, they're as blind as anybody who ever walked the face of the earth. 
they will believe things that you cannot find in scriptures. Um, and I think two of the most prevalent one are infant baptism and transubstantiation. These doctrines. I have, it's unbelievable what some people will go through to try to justify something. Only be, the only reason is a tradition. And, and brilliant people that I believe are really Christians. And so is that probably true for us? Well, very well could be. That's why ultimately we've got to submit to the authority of scriptures. Because we could just as well have a tradition that's steamrolling us over as anybody else out there. Right? So, buyer beware. Traditions are fine if they're not essential to the gospel. You know, if we traditionally meet on Sunday morning at 10.30, it's neither here nor there. There's a lot of other things that could be done. But when it comes to things like the doctrines of, of grace and, the, and what baptism means and what the significance of the Lord's Supper and stuff like that, we better get in there and search the Scripture and not just try to find proof for our religious traditions. And how easy it is to just go through life following the rote traditions of man. So I did my religious obligation. I was baptized when I was a baby. been to church every day of my life. I've done what I'm supposed to do. Therefore, God must be happy with me. may not be the case. I know. That's why I'm so death on false assurance. It's, an, it's, it's like being inoculated against the gospel. And it, and it becomes like a Teflon coating. Everything just slides off. So that's why the law needs to shake us up. So we need know we need a savior. Okay, so that was rote tradition. Let's look at the next one, Isaiah fifty-two, fifteen. Lest you speak of many nations, things which have been mouths on the contrary. What they have not been told sorry. What had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. That's an interesting passage because there's prophesying the Messiah is going to sprinkle many nations. Now, the term for sprinkle there means to be made clean before God. So that would be a startling thing for a Jewish person in the Old Testament to read. Well, how would the goyim be sprinkled and clean? Well, the answer is Messiah is going to shed his blood to cleanse the nations. And people will come to God. People, The unexpected people will come to God. Some of the most wretched, wicked sinners that you can imagine in places that you couldn't imagine find God through the gospel. He'll sprinkle many nations. Ezekiel 36.25, Tyler. Okay, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. That's found in Ezekiel 36, which which is a future prophecy. So it wasn't talking about the ceremonial cleanliness that they already had in their rituals. It was talking about some future act where God's going to circumcise their hearts and cleanse them. Ezekiel 36 is a very important prophecy about God's future dealings with Israel. What was that, Ezekiel 35? 36. That was 36. 36, 25, we just heard. Uh, if you read the context, it's about God regathering Israel and cleansing Israel, making Israel right before God. The whole section. There's like 15 verses in there in Ezekiel 36 that point out what God's going to do. It's a future prophecy of making them clean. He's okay, Zechariah 13.1. 13.1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Okay, listen to that. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for Israel. Now, why would in the time of Zechariah they be looking forward to a future day of a fountain being opened for sin and impurity when they've had the Levitical priesthood and, and the ceremonial cleansing for hundreds and hundreds of years going back to Moses? What is this future day when a fountain's opened? What do you think? Yeah, when Messiah comes. Zechariah was in the time where they had they had come back, and I don't know if they had it rebuilt or not. They were working on it, if I if I remember right. Zechariah is an interesting prophet, but it's obviously looking to this eschatological day of Messiah when his fountain would be open. Now we sing a hymn about that. Do you remember what it is? There is a fountain filled with blood. 
beautiful hymn. Okay, 1 Corinthians 6.11. And that is what some of you were. You were washed, you were sanctified, and were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that is what some of you were. That was right after a list of sins like murderers and thieves and drunkards and homosexuals. And I said, and such were, were some of you, but you are washed, cleaned, sanctified. You know, that's important truth, remember. It's not where you've been, it's where you're going. And, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't ma- the depth of sin that we may have been in in the past, no matter how bad they are, can be washed away by the blood of Jesus. Absolutely. And, and I don't think most people understand that. They misunderstand the Christian message. And they think it's about being good rather than being redeemed. I know when I, I was a you know, college student when I got saved, but I was working summers with these guys at this feed plant in my hometown to make money to go back to college in the fall. And this is a rough and tumble bunch of sinners, you know, and nasty, I mean, just terrible. I suppose just like anybody else, but anyhow, yeah, they were just all in one place, all the sinners. But I was one of them. And I got saved in the middle of the second summer that I worked there. And that caused a big stir. And then when I came back for the third summer, I was a Bible college student rather than a chemical engineering student. And one of these guys was kind of bemused by that whole thing. And he, he, he sat me down once and he says, well, so how do you think you can ever be a pastor? And I says, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you're going to have to go to some other town. <laughs> yeah, we, we all know about you. And, and I, I was, and I just was taken back because it showed he didn't understand the gospel. I said, I can't be a pastor or a Christian or anything else based on what I used to do. I mean, he must have think that there are certain people born pure and pristine or whatever, and then they just grow up being pleasing to God. And I said, no, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I can't be a pastor because of anything other than what God did for me. And he just kind of shook his head. They don't get it. Yes. One of the biggest uh, attacks on the gospel or misconceptions that we carry relative to the gospel is this concept of penance. How many of us have sinned and we Instead of trusting in just what we were just reading here, we say, well, I'm going to make it better because I'm going to do this or so. If you have a penance concept, and you're going to be better now because, and make it better, and it's just works hidden under this little, this little veil. And the trouble with penance concept is that you're going forward, and then you fail again, and now your penance doesn't cover your past sin, you've got another one to deal with, so you're going to have more penance. I, I, I know. It doesn't really work, but it's a fantastic fundraising scheme for the church. <laughs> okay, you sin, now you better give more money this next week. So then, and then if you sin again, you better give more money. And now if you hang people, dangle people over that pit, you can really raise some money. You can build St. Peter's Cathedral. Well, <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah, it's a good point. And you know what's interesting about the idea of penance? It goes back to the, like, uh, in the late second century. I mean, it goes way, way back in church history before there was even a literal Roman Catholic church. And what happened, do you want to hear how it came to be? Yeah. Okay. What, the way penance came to be was because of the persecution that the church was under from various Roman emperors. Different emperors had different levels of persecution, and some of them tolerated Christians, and then the next one arrived would try to kill the Christians or throw them into jail. Well, later on, this would be in the third century, one of these emperors, um, rather than killing the Christians, which they decided just made Christianity spread, they would, they would confiscate their scriptures and destroy them and then and throw their Christians into prison. And they'd sit in there until a new emperor rose that didn't care whether you're a Christian. They'd get out. Well, in order to avoid going to prison, a lot of some of the Christians were denying Christ. So they'd say, you, either, you know, if you deny Christ, you're fine. You can keep on doing whatever you're doing. And so there were some top church officials who denied Christ and, and then just became secret Christians as far as the Rome was concerned. 
And then others confessed and went to jail. Then when, the, when they got out, you had the confessors and the deniers. And some of the deniers were the bishops, and the confessors thought it wasn't right. Yeah, some of them were, or whoever they were. And so there was a dispute at this time of this donation con- controversy of the Donatists about who the true bishops were and who spoke for God. And they were saying, we're pious, we confess, so we speak for God. And these people are a bunch of scoundrels that denied. Now they want to come back into the church later. And, and so out of this crisis of what to do with these lapsed people who would fall away during times of persecution, they thought, well, it's not fair to the, you know, we suffered... And now we're in the church. These guys didn't suffer and they want to stay in the church. It's not fair. So one of the things that arose was the idea of penance. Make them pay for something. Make them at least do something to get back in. All right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) To try to make it seem more fair. And then the other thing that was going on in the very, very early church was they believed in a heightened understanding of baptism. And that goes back so far it's amazing. It's not biblical, but it was around even in the, in the second century. The idea was that if you sinned after you're baptized, now you're gonna, now you're lost, you're going to hell. And so for that reason, some people didn't get baptized until they were on their deathbed. Well, I think I'm gonna go bring the water in. <laughs> and, because then they didn't have time to backslide after they got baptized. And, and that became an unworkable thing because of course everybody sins after they, they're baptized. So they came up with, again, penance, contrition, acts of contrition, something to show that you're sincere. So rather than just being rebaptized over and over again, you come back and do something to make up for it. Well, this whole process got institutionalized eventually in the traditions of Rome. And it became a bigger thing and a more, you know, uh, how would you say it, traditional thing. But Keith is right. <clears throat> the means for the cleansing of sins doesn't change. And walking out the Christian life is similar to entering it. You, you enter by faith, you walk by faith. You're cleansed once for all by the blood of Jesus. And what happens when you sin after you're a Christian? Or if you sin after you're a Christian? No, the blood of Jesus. It says that we walk in the light as He is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus continues to cleanse past, present, and future. And we come to God on the same basis over and over. And by God's grace, we progressively are sanctified and God does change our lives. But the foundation has to stay the same. Penance is just works. Paul said to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, do you believe that you began in the Spirit or are you going to make be made perfect by the flesh? Are you going to start by grace through faith and then become perfect by doing religious works? I don't think so. Kathy, well, so what did they make you do? Oh, five Hail Marys, four Our Fathers. Five Hail Marys, four Our Fathers. You know, I always thought, now, let's just, thank you, Kathy. I've heard that from a lot of people. I didn't ever have the privilege of being Catholic. You know, we were, see, we had it a lot easier in a Methodist church. We thought everybody was going to heaven anyhow, so it didn't matter. Go back over it again. <laughs> Can you imagine if the priests that are listening to everybody's sin? But, you know, here's, here's the problem. Think about what this is saying to people. That praying the Lord's Prayer is punishment. Isn't that, isn't that creating a, a hugely bad understanding of prayer? You are a very wicked person. Now you have to say, ten our fathers. It's like, oh, do I have to? <laughs> <laughs> Why would anybody want to do that? If you're really bad. <laughs> and and it, it's just terrible uh, inculcation of bad attitudes. Whereas, think about that in contrast to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says it's a privilege to go to the throne of grace. To find grace and help. It's a privilege to pray. It isn't a punishment. It's a throne of grace, not a throne of punishment. Yes. The Mormon church is the same way. It's talked to some Mormon missionaries, and they say, well, of course you're saved by grace, but only after you've done all that you can do. Yeah, they, no, they have a whole doctrine of works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you never know. 
Um, okay, so I guess some more. Oh, yes. A quick joke in here reminds me of the guy at Columbia that hoped for his wood for a period of five, ten years and finally his conscience bothers him so much when he goes to the Catholic Church and their confession. And he confesses his sins and the father says, you know, do so many young Marys and whatever. <clears throat> and make a novena. So the guy says, well, father, he says, if you got the plans, I sure got the <laughs> Make a novena. You got the plans, I got the woods. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, uh, Ephesians 3.12 uh, for, for Noel. Ephesians 3.12. And Pat, Ephesians 5.26. Lotus, Titus 3 and verse 5. And Sam, Hebrews 4.16. Norma, Revelation 1.5. A lot of verses. Running out of the room. Well, it's amazing. This is this shows how important this is. How often it's reemphasized in the Bible. That's why we do this. Ephesians, Ephesians uh, three and verse twelve. In whom we have boldness and confident access. Now, the only how could anybody go boldly to God unless they were assured of having been cleansed? Because otherwise, you'd be struck dead. And so that shows the greatness of the blood atonement. What a sad shame when that doesn't get preached. I wonder how many people in modern religious America know about the significance of the blood atonement. It's not preached because it's... I I grew up in a church that had removed it. I never heard about it. It wasn't in our hymns. It wasn't in our doctrine. And it wasn't coming from the pulpit. And you don't, yeah, you don't hear it. And when I got saved in 1971, and I went to Bible college, one of the things that was exciting was not only the teaching and preaching of the doctrine of the blood atonement, which was central. So even that denomination by now, by the way, by now you wouldn't hear it in their churches for the most part. But it was in our hymnals as well, in our songs, in our choruses. And uh, there were a whole big section about the blood atonement in the, in the hymnal. And we used to sing those. Uh, Are you washed in the blood? And, um, and so this doctrine is exceedingly important. And the lack of understanding is going to be spiritually perilous to religious people. Because they're not going to know how to come to God. Okay, Ephesians 5.26 we were talking about that out at the couple's Bible study. Having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word. <clears throat> so God cleanses his church and purifies her. Titus 3, 5. Oh, Titus 3, 5. That's okay. Titus 3, 5. Uh, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, and that is also a song. Okay. That's a song, huh? Well, the washing of regeneration there is the phrase that we're looking at. So, regener- what's regeneration mean? To, yes, it means to be born again. To be made alive spiritually. To receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All of these things are part and parcel of this act of salvation that God does through grace by the blood atonement. Okay, Hebrews 4.16, Sam. There's that one about the throne of grace. Amen. So, that was uh, uh, Hebrews 4.16. So, as we were saying earlier, praying for the born-again Christian isn't punishment or penance. It's a, a sacred privilege. Okay, Revelation 1.5. He released us from our sins by His blood. Is this important? Do you think people need to hear it? Should we preach it? Good. I think I will. <laughs> Considering the verses we just read, and they are in the Catholic Bible, why would the Catholics bother to pray to the saints in the Mary? The question was, why would Catholics pray to saints and Mary, being how they have the same Bible that says the same thing? Well, they would, if you talk to the more conservative Catholic people, 
they would claim, there's this one guy who always emails Jan and I and anybody else, Todd Friel. His name is Gerald. Gerald. <laughs> He's a Catholic guy. that He shows up at these meetings. and all. See, he knows all this stuff. And he said, no, we believe in we can come to God through Jesus Christ. We believe the same thing. Why are you saying we don't believe that? And, he, and you go back in Catholic dogma and you'll find it. And you'll find it in the catechism. But what, what, what he and others don't realize is there's a huge disconnect from official dogma and doctrine and actual practice. It's like this guy debated about the purpose-driven life. He's still keeping it up. He's, he's writing articles about what's wrong with me and my teaching about Rick Warren. Because he can dig through Rick Warren's stuff and find some place where Rick Warren believes in Bible study or find some place where he believes in good doctrine. He can do the same thing with the Roman church. But what really matters is what you preach and teach from your pulpit week after week after week. And what's, what, what is the practice in the minds and hearts of the people who've been sitting under your doctrine? And so if you've got a billion Catholics, most of whom, and if you talk to your typical average Catholic, they don't really understand that you can go to God directly through the personal work of Jesus and the once for all blood atonement, whether it's in somebody's dogma somewhere or not. And, and when I wrote my article, The Gospel for Roman Catholics, some conservative Catholics called me and they were upset. I said, well, why are you upset? Well, we believe this. So then why are you mad that I'm saying it? <laughs> you know, uh, they, it's like they've got to keep everybody under this cloud of confusion so they can't understand the way to God. If, you know, they do know it. I heard somebody say once that 95% of false teaching is correct. <laughs> so it's the five percent. Yeah, that, uh, a good analogy of that is that rat poison is ninety-eight percent nutritious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look, go get a box of rat poison. It'll, it'll say, you know, nine, you know, low carb. <laughs> low carb. <laughs> it's, it's just grain and oats and everything else, and a little bit of arsenic or something in there. Yes. I think it's like this when the gospel comes, I think you can find the gospel clearly in the Catholic dogma. And the Catholic Church could have the same Bible, they have the same Apostles' Creed, and they have the same prayer to our Father, to uh, our Father, that Jesus taught us to pray. But if you, it's a bait and switch. If I give you the gospel and say, but you really need to, have confession, you know, this is where you need to have your confidence in whatever it is, in the Pope's blessing, or in the saints' prayers, or in Mary's, whatever. It's a it's a bait and switch issue. I'm sure there's Catholics that never take the bait. And then, in essence, you know, the, to the pure, all things are pure because we only have an appetite for the gospel. But when I try to bait you with this and then switch it to that, it's not. that's the Colossian heresy. Yeah, they. Um, did you notice the picture of the Pope's? A casket? What was on there? An M. What did it stand for? Mary. Yes. Well, that's where he's trusting. Yes. <laughs> exactly. To the saints in Ephesus, there none of them were dead. I, yeah, you're right, Larry. The, the the practice is so buried. I mean, what's true it was buried under the practice, and the tradition is the steamroller, like I said. And for example, I have a friend who married a young lady who grew up Catholic, and her parents were going to totally go ballistic if she, they weren't married by the priest. And so in order to keep family peace, they decided to go ahead with it, even though they, neither one of them really believed in that. And so when they went in to talk to the priest before they got married, my friend brought in his Bible and he started quoting it. And the priest is telling him all this Catholic stuff and he quotes his Bible. And the priest is going, really? Oh, whatever. And then he'd say his stuff and then my friend would quote the Bible and the priest goes, never heard it. The priest didn't know these verses. He never read them. It was all news to him. 
Because he's not being paid to know the Bible. He's being paid to do the sacraments of the church. And to, and, and to, and to make sure the traditions go forward. Now, that doesn't mean he couldn't have. They don't forbid it. But he didn't know. He had no clue. And it was a kind of an eye-opener. So that here's the leader of the church who doesn't know the Bible. Now, the, that was 30 year, 20 years ago. Uh, today, I think that might be true for a lot of Protestant pastors. And evangelical pastors. You go tell them the Bible's over. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Because they're not studying it. So you mean I could have been getting my sermons online? <laughs> I did all this work for nothing? <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh. What you said that Came right from online, huh? Yeah, the pastors.com has 23 years of Rick Warden sermons, and if you sign up for so much, you can download them. You can get his PowerPoint. You can get the audio. You can get the video. And if that's too much work, you can sign up for the campaign and pipe him in via satellite, and you don't even have to get in the pulpit. Doesn't the Lutheran Church do that? Don't they have a weekly... If you haven't seen this, there's an email going around. It's a link to John MacArthur that has 15 evil consequences for pastors not preaching expositionally. It's a fantastic email. And one of them was you don't learn yourself. I, I mean, I'd be so bored to death. I, I love doing this. This is how I grow. I mean, it would, I would die. Well, thank you. You're so kind. Well, anyhow, uh, just talking about sermons, this morning we're going to be preaching from Matthew 26, 1 through 29, concerning the Last Supper and the institution of the Lord's Supper and the betrayal of Judas. And it's going to be about judgment and blessing at the Last Supper. That's this morning at 10.30. Thank you for coming to Sunday School. See you in a half hour upstairs. Could we skip the service and just go home and get this?